It's episode 113 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is designer Jared Ficklin. He's the chief creative technologist at Argo Design, and he's here to discuss the interesting trend of no-code and low-code in software design and how it might offer a pathway to understanding in an AI-driven world. Jared, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. But before we get started, I have a quick update from the last episode. That program was sponsored by Discourse, who make community software, which I just adore. But I managed to mess it up and call them Discord a couple of times, which is a whole different product. So uh, my apologies for that. Please go check out Discourse.com. They really do make fantastic community software, and it's one that I use every day. So Discourse. Is this is the, discourse? Um, that, that's it's the right. one that's you right. want to look up. Absolutely. All right, Jared. Thanks again. I'm, welcome to the show. I'm I'm really glad you're here. And what we're about to have is a, a lovely discourse about I think interfaces and AI. Oh, it'd be wonderful. Before we do that, though, I was looking at your uh, Twitter feed and saw in your bio that you're a skate park advocate, uh, I, and that just sounded super interesting to me. Tell me about that. Oh, it is. Um, I was the executive co-director of the Austin Public Skate Park Action Committee mm. for about a decade and a half. Still hold the title now, but we're kind of a dormant group because we kind of succeeded ourselves out of needing to exist. So I grew up a skateboarder Yeah, and I skated well into my 30s. And when I moved to Austin in 1999, there was no skate park there and left Albuquerque, New Mexico, where there were three skate parks. And so I teamed up with a friend, Seth Johnson, and some local skaters, and we created an activist group, and we did some pretty momentous things that ended up in dozens of skate parks now existing in the central Texas area. Um, we helped amend the Texas Constitution Ooh. to indemnify skateboarding from as one of those activities you can't sue the state while you're doing. Ah. And then we uh, triangulated this four-party deal for a big park that was a super fun cleanup site looking for amenities. And we're like, you know what you could put on top of a cap like that? Concrete and steel. That's right. And so we built the first skate park in Austin, Mabel Davis Skate Park. Um, I got to design the street course with a bunch of local skateboarders. Um, And it's really cool as a designer to say that you've designed an interface that uh, gets used by like 90,000 people a month. And is going to last uh, for decades because it's made of concrete and steel. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's so cool. Uh, That's so cool. I've been uh, watching the Tokyo Olympics and they've got skateboarding for the first time. Uh, And I was just the the women's skateboarding was a couple of days ago and we were watching it. Um, And these these girls that are like 13 years old are doing these amazing tricks and getting medals. And it was just so inspiring to see. Uh, Have you seen any of that? It's been incredible. Uh, absolutely. And so, yeah, the infrastructure of skate park has really led to this moment. And, you know, yeah. I grew up skateboarding in the eighties when it was a counterculture movement mm. and it was illegal. Empty pools and, and all of that. Empty pools. And I, I, I used to tell people even back then, I was like, just wait, someday this is going to be a country club sport. And they would not believe me. But I remember on the internet finding this sign from like England in the 1400s or something. And it was at at some farmer's pasture. And it said, uh, those who are caught playing the game of golf will be put in the stocks. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently there was an era when golf 
<laughs> was a counterculture movement. You would sneak into farmers' fields and hit a ball around and risk going to jail. And I knew at that moment that skateboarding was going to eventually be on the same path. Right. So it's really interesting. It's such a conflicting thing for the sport right now to see it in the Olympics. And uh, but I, I I really love it, and it's really great to see. It's such a good individual sport. It's yeah. such a great form of exercise and discipline and it's community building as well. And it's all about an individual versus geography and what kind of like style and practice and discipline and, and fun they can bring to it. It's been wonderful to watch as well. Um, so tell me a little bit, uh, about now your journey to, uh, to the position of chief, uh, creative technologist. Uh, you've been practicing design for quite a while. Um, and, uh, and I think you bring a, a sort of a lot to the conversation we're going to have today. Um, so tell me how you got there a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I went through my college years studying everything. I was a professional saxophone major. I was a philosophy major. I did a couple of years of experimental psychology. And then I was like, I want to get out of college. <laughs> and so I, I realized that I could get a degree in marketing um, really quickly <laughs> like in a semester <laughs> and a half. Uh, it's really a, a, a vocabulary degree. If you grew up in the United States, you have a degree in marketing. You just need to learn all the correct vocabulary <laughs> and a little bit about statistics. Uh, and the process of there, I took an internship with a technology company who was called Interactive Services Incorporated that worked along with an ad agency, Rick Johnson and Company. And I got exposed to this world of building websites mm -hmm. and building backend services. We did everything. And then a friend of mine said, hey, uh, you know what they're paying BB script developers in Austin? And he gave me the figure. And I was like, well, I guess I'm moving to Austin. <laughs> I'd already been there a couple of times as a musician. So it felt like a city I could fit into. Mm. And I moved there in 1999 and was recruited by a few uh, firms. But this little place called Frog that I had never heard of before, Frog Design, uh, ended up winning. I called my buddy Seth, the one we talked about earlier. I was like, Hey, this company Frog wants to hire me. Should I work for him? He's like, Yeah, they throw awesome parties. <laughs> I've been to those parties at South by Southwest in the many years ago. But yeah, for sure. Yeah, ironically, I ended up being um, for seven years directed the South by Southwest interactive opening party for Frog. Oh, wonderful. Frog party. <laughs> so I worked at Frog for fourteen years, and that was really my design education. Mm. Um, before then, I'd just been a kid who put together flyers and T-shirts, but not. Uh, any kind of training or schooling. So that was my school. And I always kind of sat outside Mark Ralston's office, who was the chief creative officer. And we became really good friends over our love of dots and cars and science fiction and movies and just futurism in general. Yeah. And uh, an opportunity came. We uh, left Frog about eight years ago and formed Argo Design and uh, have grown that uh, design firm as well. And we like really want, we've always been passionate about product design, you know, getting things into people's hands yeah. that, you know, amplify humanity. And we really believe in design that makes a meaningful difference. And we believe in think by making that, you know, ideas in the hands of the trained are actually quite easy. The hard part is manifesting them and validating them and, and, and making the series of quality decisions about aesthetics and experience that add up to something that's really really useful and delightful and, and, and helpful. And that's what Argo focuses on. So it's been a long multi-decade journey and I, I've 
done all roles. I used to do a lot of user experience simulation. That was a practice that I started at Frog. And the reason I'm a Frog fellow was this idea that you could use code to set up an experience rapidly and iterate it. Mm. We did like a series of HP printers, right? And we actually built a model and I wrote the interface in Flash. And we hacked together a bunch of screens and hit a big computer behind. And we did 56 user um, tests across the world with that little model. And we would you know, between series, we could just change the code rapidly. And I remember going to the engineers that were going to make the final interface on the printer interface. And they, they looked at the, at my, uh, user experience simulation. They're like, you just saved us three months of work. We don't ever get specifications like this. And I was like, we'll use that three months to do this blitting animation. Since you don't have an animation (laughs) chip on your EEPROM and they're like, okay. And I taught them these easing equations. And as a result, the interface was just improved. And so that, that process of think by making started early in my career and continues to this day. And that's where the chief creative technologist part comes from. So kind of a blend between a multidisciplinary approach to it. That's really interesting. That, that think by making is something that I've always very intuitively it's kind of been my process as well. Uh, early in my career, when I first got into the game, um, there was very much the like, uh, we need a requirements document and uh, specifications, and you need to write about everything uh, before we'll even write a line of code. And that shift over the decades towards much more rapid iteration, I think had a lot to do with the with the plumbing of the web, right? Like we're not... Yeah. We're not writing things that need to be compiled. We're like we're using incredibly lightweight scripting, and so that we can actually make something that approximates what the end result will be in a matter of days or even hours. And I think that that sort of loop over time fundamentally changed the the position of the designer in the development process for much much for the better. I, I would say absolutely. And at the same time, our state machine got more complex. Yeah. It went from flash you an image, flash you an image like a page where right. red line specs could do, describe the way everything lays out to something that was responsive because it needed to cross five or six different aspect ratios and involved animation. So it got fourth, a fourth dimension to it. And especially with the animation challenge, how did you red line spec an animation? And so this idea that you actually could build it out, um, not with engineering code, but just expedient code and right. show how it worked and prove that it could work to IT departments and also hear empathetically back what their challenges were and understand what a memory leak was or what procedural code is versus, you know, model code. Like that really helps you start from a footing of viability, right? And so that's what creative technology was all about. It was someone who used code in to solve the design challenges. Right. But yeah. in that way, they had a familiarity with what the technology's capability was. And therefore, they could, at the very earliest stages of the design process, imbue a certain kind of realism mm. to to the ideas, the right kind of constraints. Right. You know, throughout my career, I've had designers ask me, do I need to learn to code? And, you know, every five years that the answer stays the same, but the direction that they come from with the question is, is always different as things iterate. Like you say, you know, with the advent of, of uh, animation and, and time-based interface and, and now audio interfaces, it's just on and on, right? Uh, and I've always sort of preached this discipline of understanding capabilities and limitations, if not further down and getting your hands into the code, which can actually 
sometimes be very distracting from uh, where your skills as a designer lie. So it's interesting that this is, you know, um, uh, I still think is very much a, a good solution for designers as they're thinking about wh what skills do I really need to be successful. And it has changed. Like, so back then you needed to learn to code in order to do animation, right? right? Or in order to see what, um, you know, Chrome or Internet Explorer could render. Um, now you have all kinds of tools, origami, others that where you can like explore the animation and they all have these kind of interesting interfaces. But what my, what some of my designers are playing with and what they learned to code for is to like set up a GAN model or a little machine learning algorithm. Interesting. And uh, in order to understand the way that technology works and the kind of some of the artistic applications that come out of the world of AI, which is really fascinating. And in order to play in that world, you have to learn a little bit about code or to play with processing or to do interactive art. You got to learn a little bit about code right. uh, and such. We, we definitely keep creative technologists on staff to be the translators mm -hmm. of the capability because you got to get in pretty deep. But my, de for my designers, I, I encourage them to, you know, pick up secondary and tertiary skills that are complementary, And that's an area of interest right now is to dig into these kind of spaces. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so, uh, we started off, uh, with the, with the broad topic of sort of low code or no code. I hear this all the time and, and in some some parts, especially sort of in the entrepreneurial world where I spend a lot of time, it is a uh, it is a method for expressing startups very quickly. And I know there's there's other definitions, but that might be like we're not going to use a database. We're going to use Airtable, and we're going to connect it to this thing using Zapier or Trade.io, and we're going to connect all these things together, and we're going to have essentially our solution without writing very much code at all. Maybe a little glue between things. And I think there's a lot of other ways that that idea is expressed, but I would love to hear sort of your perspective on this concept of, of sort of providing solutions without having to write a ton of code. Right. Um, really, I think if we were to boil this up to a movement, it's a democratization. Love that. It's yeah. what's pushing this, right? Is that they want more people, they want more people involved in the creation process of the solution, right? So the solution would be how the technology manifests itself through interface to solve the, the problem, the business problem at hand, right? And there is this rigorous process that is kind of monastic at this point that the ID department sits here with the people capable of interfacing with the technology the marketing and the business um, subject matter experts sit here understanding the problem. And between them are the designers making the decisions to bring the two together, right? And, you know, funny enough, within computer theory, you would think that you would just object orient that in a way where the technology could be written in a way that the subject matter experts could just deploy, right? Right. right. And that's what low code, no code is in a nutshell, is that we are finally starting to realize that capability technology and device and the hardware side of it and the cloud provider side of it is long enough in the truth tooth. The design has had enough time to understand how technology can be deployed so that we can now modularize things and give interfaces to them so that the subject matter experts, the business um, owners can go into an interface, learn it and deploy it. And I think really, it's hard to say where a genesis is, but I think this all started with Salesforce. Mm. Um, 
right? Yeah, because sure. Salesforce became this database interface tool for generating campaigns and emails that a salesperson could sit there and learn. And now, I think a misnomer is that low code and no code is simple. It's not, actually. In a lot of ways, if you could learn the syntax, it's much faster, much more efficient, much simpler just to write the code. Right. But not everyone thinks in that way or can approach that metaphor. And, you know, we saw this in the evolution of computers themselves, right? Things used to work through a um, text-based interface, mm -hmm. the console, but only a certain mindset could understand that, right? The IT type mindset could, un could and what, it, what, they, what special skill they had was the ability to visualize the result based on the logic in front of them. Right. right. And so when they were writing those words of code, it really is like the matrix. They're seeing, you know, uh, like the operator sitting there seeing those green lines of code is, you know, seeing what's happening in the matrix. That's the way they operate. Right. Well, we had to change that metaphor for anyone else to be involved, because if you didn't have that capability from in your genetics, you needed a metaphor on top of the code in order. And so we came up, you know, with files, folders, and a desktop. We just sure. took the 60s office and metaphorically put it as a GUI over top of the code, right? Same thing is happening now on a much bigger scale, right? Um, a salesperson thinks in a particular way about a campaign. And so if you give them an interface, it might take 100 more steps to do something, but they're not having to visualize the code. They and in fact, they have a different ability. They're able to visualize this narrative, this funnel of things going out and requests coming back in at different steps and the right thing to hit up another person with, right? Like if you and I go into Salesforce, we're so freaking confused. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the reason is, is because we don't, we don't visualize that way, <laughs> right? So I think that's an important underpinning of computer theory and the history of computing to understand what's bringing us to our this moment, right? So now we're leveling up into new areas, right? We're in, and these are the grand orchestrations, right? Mm. Entire multitask solutions or solutions that cross uh, businesses um, uh, and business goals, or even like the smaller goal, like animating uh, a screen, like we were talking about earlier. Origami is a low-code interface. It's a node-based interface where you have these little cards that hold the properties of given methods, mm -hmm. like I would call a tweening method. So yeah. a, the simplest tweening method just divide, like let's say a linear tween, just divides the X or Y distance in, in half every time until you reach a given stopping point. So, you know, the distance between my endpoint and where I'm at now is less than half a pixel stop running, right? And then, right, well, in, in, that function is enormously simple to write. It only takes a, a very few line, like three lines of code, depending on how you format and, and just hardly any characters at all, right. right? But if you don't understand the code, you put it in a little box in a module where someone can adjust the properties of it and then they can drag a line over to the object that they want it to control and then they can see the result, right? And it allows a designer to, to manifest that kind of, but what they're really doing, the activity that they're doing is orchestrating. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And that's what you were talking about earlier. All this sticky glue. You said a little bit, and I would say, no, it's a ton of glue. <laughs> the people are now just administering glue everywhere. They're playing Minecraft on a massive 
level at this point. They have all the blocks in front of them. They know what the block types are. All they got to do is assemble them in the right order right. and they can, and it begins to work. And that's orchestration, right? And so the interface challenge here um, in low code, no code is one of orchestration when you're doing it as a solutions approach, opposed to what you're talking about. People are standing up whole businesses on the backbones of existing architectures. And then there's this other movement that's like, let's democratize the solution building so more people can participate and the IT group doesn't become such a bottleneck. Right, right, absolutely. And also so they're not spending as much of their time in minutia and procedural concerns, right? They can focus on object orienting their technology so that people can leverage it over and over again, which just brings about massive efficiencies. But then there's certain interfaces, certain fields, like the field of artificial intelligence where this is gets really interesting. All right, I want you to hold that thought because I'm going to uh, spend some time on that, but we're going to take a little break before we do that. Um, this episode uh, here is brought to us by a longtime sponsor of good friends of ours over at Pingdom from SolarWinds. Um, you know, like if you're doing design uh, and you've got a website, obviously performance is important. You know that. You design it in. It's from the beginning. We all get that fast web experience is critical. Uh, but how do you know uh, if it stays fast after you launch, right? No matter how targeted your marketing content is or how sleek your website is, like people are going to bounce if the page doesn't keep loading fast no matter what. So Pingdom has this thing called real user monitoring, uh, and you can discover how website performance affects the user experience that your visitors are having. Um, you can take action before there's any impact to the business, uh, before support ever hears about it. Uh, you get to do all of this for as low as $10 a month. Uh, your visitors are probably all around the world. Uh, they've probably got all kinds of different browsers, platforms, uh, devices. Pingdom helps identify all of that and where the bottlenecks would be troubleshoot the performance, make the optimization, and lets you know. So it's an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability. You can monitor millions of page views. You don't just sample the data. Uh, you get the real stuff. And like I said, super affordable. Uh, so get live site performance visibility today with this real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. Uh, you get a 30-day free trial. You don't even have to use your credit card. When you do sign up, uh, if you decide to buy, use the code PRESENTABLE, they'll knock 30% off your invoice. So thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, let me go back like 15 years when when uh, I was working at Google. We were designing Google Analytics. We were doing a bunch of research. What we found was that there were three groups inside of organizations that were kind of responsible for uh, what would become like the like the reporting from a performance of an ad campaign or a website. Um, uh, they'd be the engineers who, who were down deep, right? Like they're parsing logs and they're injecting things into the database. You had the marketers on the other end who wanted all the answers and to know if the things that they were doing was right. And then in the middle, we had this category of analysts and they would go and write wildly long SQL queries based on a conversation with the marketer to get the data that the engineers had put in, right? These people in the middle. And we've realized like the whole goal here is to totally streamline Right, and so that the uh, marketers with the questions could get the answers directly out of the database, and that's 
honestly what Google Analytics became. And that feels a lot like this democratizing process, right? They could work so much faster. They could ask any question. They weren't bogging people down. There was no bottleneck. They had direct access to the data and that's what they wanted all along. So what I hear you saying is like that has continued to progress. Now we're in a world of of data coming from AI systems that, that we, we may not fundamentally understand, things like that. And it's just that process of optimization and democracy democratization has gotten a lot more important. Yeah. Yeah. So some of it is a repeat of history, right? AI is actually kind of a specialized area uh, of engineering uh-huh. and there are AI specialists and it, and it requires data scientists, requires AI specialists to understand how the models work and how to write the code. Right. Right. And so all of a sudden your population of application developers, right? So, you know, some of these companies, you know, have like 22,000 application developers and 200 of them are capable of really working in the AI space, right? So the bottlenecks of lore that you were experiencing back then with just data analytics have resurfaced right. for one, right? Um, you you know, you're waiting 18 months to de- deploy a, a simple feature because you're waiting for the, the data get scientists to pull the data together into a data pool. You're waiting for the AI engineers to work out the correct model and then give it some sort of interface that the application developers can then pick it up on it. But then the application developers have to kind of like find it, right? So we've been working with this company, Cognitive Scale, for eight years. They were our very first client, actually. And, you know, it was Manoj Saxona and Matt Sanchez who came out of IBM in closely associated with uh, IBM Watson and that AI kind of world decided, let's productize our AI, you know, as a scalable cloud solution, right? Right. And very soon they brought us this interesting challenge, which was we have to live up to our name. This actually has to scale. We can't just be this mercenary force that comes in and, and you know, amplifies a workforce to get stuff done. We have an architecture here that if people can build upon, an architecture of taking models and encapsulating them as skills so they can accomplish a specific purpose, like finding a green shirt would be a trivial purpose, fine green shirt, right? And put them in a catalog in a way that any application developer can just um, utilize them. But at the same time, they need to be able to understand what's going on. And so this was an orchestration first approach, <laughs> right? So they could, and this is the first thing that we did with them. We helped them create these things called agents. And it was an interface where an application developer who was not trained in AI, but was very well-versed in technology could mm-hmm. come in. And instead of taking five months of walking code, one method calls another method, which calls another method, which finally passes properties into a model, right. which creates results, which are then split up and passed into a database and passed to a, a set of code that then renders an interface, which shows you a green shirt because a data pool told us that that was your favorite color, <laughs> just to make a trivial example, yeah, right? Sure. Instead, they just opened up this interface and we had inputs and outputs and each agent manifests itself as a service. They can go in the catalog to end the skill. It shows up as a little circle on the interface. When you click on it, you can see all the properties. You can adjust data on its way in and its way out. And so you just search. If you're thinking you're sitting there and your business owners come to you and he said, hey, I, I want to, you know, I want customers to recommend shirts to people based on their favorite customers. Uh, let's get that in, in this in this product. Mm-hmm. 
And that's something to note, by the way. AI deploys at a very atomic level these days, sure. uh, more so than people believe. But right, so the developer can now just search, okay, fine green shirt, shirt, right? And if it doesn't exist, they can put it on there anyways and send a note to the um, AI engineers that says, hey, can you train me up a model for finding green shirts? And once they do, anyone in the company can use that in any kind of solution, right? One could be recommend green shirts. One could be like finding people wearing green shirts, right? right. And saying hello to them. You know, like it doesn't matter. They're going to be able to level this over and over again, right? And so the orchestrations, um, this tool, simple as it is, they still wrote a lot of code around it. It cut the, the time from like a week to two weeks to orchestrate these things down to like literally hours, couple hours someone could pull from the catalog and put together how they wanted AI to factor in their traditional solution. And that was the first step. And that was a very interesting design challenge because it isn't a linear flow. Right. It's not a linear process. And that's one of the things that is interesting about AI that is the next big change. Right? One is, yeah, we have less people. Two is it just works differently. It works on probabilities and recommendations. It does not work in certainties. And it works, it needs data flow in order to work. And the data flow doesn't go linear the way algorithms do, right? If I were to average the number of shirts you bought and see that most of them were green and assume that you had green shirts and recommend you green shirts, that's a linear process. Right. It's just not the way AI works. Right. Right. <laughs> and so we couldn't just, we just couldn't draw flow charts. We actually had to show the orchestration um, of, of the thing. And that was something that took a process of trial and error and a lot of like time understanding the technology and then just some presumptive thought. And we just laid it out. We tested it. We made little uh, simulations of the interface so we could take it to different developers, get their feedback, and then ultimately landed with the, the interface that was quite successful. Once you could orchestrate these agents, though, the next part is the really excited part. And this is the campaigns. So we were just talking about campaigns and we used sales as a thing. But sure. AI actually has an interesting ability, right? That salesperson creates a generalized model based on demographics. And that's because they can't create a sales plan for every individual. You need one salesperson for every person. And that world will be filled with all salespersons, right? right. <laughs> but that salesperson probably could model what they think should happen for a number of people. AI can look at that modeling and actually learn what's going on and begin suggesting a plan for each person. And one of the places this type of AI is being deployed is in Cortex-6 from Cognitive Scale in the healthcare industry, for instance. Yeah. So imagine you had a population of people that were um, diabetics, right? And if you make the right kind of intervention like one goal uh, with, with diabetics is preventative care, right? They can live a very healthy life um, if they have certain habits and do certain things at the right time, right? And that would keep you out of the emergency room, which would keep costs down, but also keep you from being in a very unhealthy state, right? There's quite, a, quite of an alignment here, right? So if you could look at a design a plan for each individual person who is a diabetic under your care, Right. Maybe right. one of them is sending a text message at the right moment. Right. Because you notice the holidays are coming up. Dietary changes tend to work, you know, or maybe there's a new technology coming out. Like maybe it's like getting your flu shot. Right. right? And how do you get to motivate different people to get their flu shot at the right time? Right. And so 
you model all of the potential interventions you could take. You look at their potential outcomes, and then you run simulations over time against a cohort, a population. So, you know, 20 million diabetics under your care and all the data you have on them. And then you look at the plans that AI spits out, spits out these plans. It says, well, if I saw this string of events, I would suggest this to do to do next. And after you look at those for a while, you realize that the system is coming up with really good plans and then you deploy it and you actually have it start doing this. So now you can have an individualized plan for every member, which is something that humans can't do. Right. It amplifies our capability greatly. So how do you create an interface that allows you to do this? Right. (laughs) Right. One thing you'll notice in that process that's very different than a lot of interfaces that us designers have looked at is we've looked at very linear state machines for multitasking over the over the years. Totally. Right? Yeah. Build a keynote, new slide, add image, right? Done. Right. But this had phases of operation, right? Even Salesforce is new campaign, send this email. If I get this response, send that. Right. This had a new step in it, which was simulation, right? Right. (laughs) And this way it reminds me of my time in Flash, right? You have an interface that has multiple steps. You have to model, and then you have to go in and simulate, so train, and then you have to deploy and monitor, right? And so this is a very interesting interface challenge, and, and then the problem is spread across a lot of roles. So as people come to this interface, the interface needs to be responsive to their role, show them the information that they can see or need to see. Yep. And then it has to very clearly let them know what they're looking at. Are you looking at a model? Are you looking at simulation? Are you looking at a deployed um, uh, campaign, right? And then within those is the minutia of like, I need to be able to drill down on individual interventions. I need to correlate those to goals, right? And all of that has to be simple enough that a, a subject matter expert from the business side can do it, leveraging the AI code of the other. This is a really fascinating design challenge. It is. It is. You know, I uh, it reminds me a lot of I have uh, spent some time looking into things like generative art, generative oh. music, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is very much uh, almost, uh, you know, it almost trades uh, the craft of um, dexterity for more judgment, you know, like in- yes. instead of like, I'm going to practice this guitar piece over and over again, I'm instead going to tell a machine like what I like and what I don't like and more of this and less of that and shape that machine into playing music that uh, I feel like I still have created. and And in many ways, like, building an interface on a generative system that say spits out diagnoses or, or healthcare recommendations for a million people. Like you're still kind of doing, you're like more like this and less like that. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting role for a designer as the sort of a conductor of all this orchestration. Right. Yeah. That, that's a keyword. It's orchestrating and training. Right. Right. And so your interface, you know, for, for the, for the design wonky nerds out there, like picks up a whole new tab simulation right mm-hmm. in a way but at the same point you also have an ai at least when you're working with cognitive scale you have ai at your beck and call to provide a lot of context right and so you need less progressive disclosure as you're building an interface because the system can be more aware of where you are at in the process and what you have to offer and this is the same for the solutions themselves in fact if we were to go up a level from this challenge of cortex 6 and building an orchestration low code no code interface 
which really delves a lot more in letting the person know where they are in the process right. and giving them drill down tools. And there's just no convention for this either. Right. And, you know, you, and the right thing to do there is think by making when you lack convention, when you're, I call it the unique place, when a technology is sufficiently new enough or the user lacks familiarity or it's being applied in a new way, that Venn diagram builds a unique space. And that's a place where design research becomes a challenge. Right? So for instance, I was on a project once that was looking at how to use computer vision and gestures in the automobile. Well, consumers did not know what computer vision was. They didn't know what gestures were, sure. right? And so if you went and asked them how to use them in the automobile, in Western society in particular, they don't know. And when they don't know, they just make something up. They lie to you. And that's a great brainstorming activity. But most of the time, if you pursue what they lied to you and bring it back to them, they don't like it because <laughs> <laughs> they were just lying and they didn't know. So the way you break past that is you actually have to get a little presumptive. You have to set up some design. You have to put it in front of them, watch them use it as much as listen to them and then make choices from going from there. That's the art of user experience simulation and mm. think by making it's how you break out of the unique space. So it's how we broke out of this problem of lack of convention when it came to a interface for orchestrating AI campaigns. Interesting. Interesting. We just had to break it down, build it and put it in front of the users and get their feedback. You know, it, it's, it's interesting in that every time there's another wave of technology that that further say automates the process of design or um or democratizes design even farther so it's more accessible to more people it really just elevates what designers get to work on and 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 in many ways makes their role even increasingly more important um for example the role of you know being involved in ai systems it feels like historically and even more so recently designers in the role of ethicist is becoming incredibly yeah. important right so just more and more of that seems to be happening yeah the responsible ai uh <laughs> visibility is so important. The yeah. interface, this is why it's orchestration first. Right. The interface has to show you the processes that are going on because you can't make it opaque. You need to see where data is being manipulated. Yep. You need a provenance behind it, right? Mm. So that if something's going off the rails, you can troubleshoot it, but also so that you can anticipate it, right? And responsible AI is a huge move movement. And Argo Design is actually a member of Global AI Initiative which is creating, it's kind of like LEED certified, right? Right, We're right. Creating a, a handbook uh, of good practices and ways to measure your application of that so that you can um, deploy AI responsibly, which means a lot of different things. But then also working with Cognitive Scale, we've been had the opportunity to design products themselves that help you determine and make sure that your AI is one, functioning, so it's actually meeting the business goals, but two is also, you know, functioning in a responsible way. So it's meeting all the governance and ethics you wish to apply to it. And it turns out you end up writing AI to monitor AI <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of trigger conditions, right? But you do it in a very particular way, right? So let's say you're doing mortgage applications. It's very important that you, at some points, that you have randomized data sets, right? Yep. Because if you... Uh, study certain data sets, you can end up in a feedback loop where if in the past there were injustices such as a, a certain population not being approved for mortgages, they're going to continue to not be approved for mortgages right. because that's what's in the data. 
right? And so if you don't sample randomly, so like you might write a little AI that sits there and just looks at data coming into another skill and says, and 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 tests it for randomness. And if it's not seeing data that should look like random, right? So you give it the database and it, it sits there and builds a model of what random looks like. And mm-hmm. then it sees data coming in and it's like, this is not right. Ra- it can throw a flag and say, I'm not seeing random data here, right? And then you can go in and look at the AI, right? So you have these little, you know, systems like that. It's so those who are concerned that AI could create systems that are unjust or at lack um, ethical guidance, they're 100% accurate. Yeah, they should be concerned about, but they should also know that the industry is highly sensitive to this and looking for ways out of it, right? And eventually, we'll get the three laws of robotics that we need here. But um, <laughs> right. Right. But that's interesting to, to align it more uh, like a certification process and to have those sort of uh, standards, even international standards for how we do that. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I think a lot of opportunity there, too. Yeah, I think for designers, just to put a kind of a close on this, most designers are not necessarily getting to design the tools that are used to orchestrate campaigns like these things come around, sure. you know you know, once a season, so to speak, most of them are designing the solutions and what does AI offer them in that regard? And I would say it offers the ability to have less UI that the more you lean into what AI can provide, the more you're going to start seeing no UI interfaces. So we're, we're in low code, no code right now, right? but we're trending towards no UI. Uh, I think Sure. Because so much of what we put in UI today is to establish context right. tabs for progressive disclosures, search to bring. But if you can become aware of this for for the user, it means that you don't need those things. So, like my thought experiment is this, right? Here's a little vignette from today. Okay, like uh, uh, I'm sitting here finishing up work, so I'm thinking, oh, I, I should, you know, uh, uh, call uh, Jeff, invite him out to dinner. I go to my phone to look at Yelp for a place to go to dinner. I uh, get distracted by Facebook. I look at Facebook for a while. Eventually, I send a text message. Uh, There's this kind of back and forth of like where to go to dinner. Oh, uh, uh, he's got a friend with him, doesn't like sushi. We're both looking at Yelp at the same time, right? Well, and we end up picking like a pizza place, Home Slice in Austin. It's an amazing pizza place. If you're ever there, there visiting Solar Winds, it's yeah, it's go, wonderful. go there. <laughs> Solar Winds, another awesome Austin company. Uh, um, so once, uh, like, we could put AI to work for us, have a little meta me, right, that knows our preferences, and mm-hmm. my meta me will talk to your meta me, right? And so, like, in that first story, the interface of Yelp is currently designed for that capability. You go into it, there's a search field, there's a bunch of tabs, there's a bunch of listings of restaurants with ratings on them, and you spend all your time negotiating. that. Well, once we have AI on this problem, our AIs will kind of talk to each other about all of this. They have that same discussion that that we, we just had. And instead I'll pop open Yelp and it says, meet Jeff at Home Slice for dinner at 6 p.m. Right. <laughs> screams and screams and screams of UI went away yep. to just like fall back straight to experience. And I think this is the exciting, brave new world for interface designers in particular that we are wading into. And it's a really great opportunity to 
um, have calm UIs that get out of our way more so that there's just more time for humanity and less time of humanity negotiating technology. And I think that's a very bright future that we can lean into. Oh, I love that. No, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, hey, if uh, people who are listening want to learn more about this or see what you're up to and, uh, and all of that, where can they find out some more? Okay, absolutely. So quick library of links. Um, if you want to read more about Cortex 5, Cortex 6, Cognitive Scale is the name of the company, and they have a website. Uh, cognitivescale.com and then Argo Design is the design firm so you can go to argodesign.com when you Jared Ficklin is a very unique name just google it <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who's like has all the fire on stage at TED I'm not the uh, barrister from Tennessee who's <laughs> into social justice and activism uh, we don't look alike so you'll tell us apart but <laughs> F-I-C-L-I-N. Um, I love Twitter still and uh, of a pretty good Instagram feed. You'll find me as Twin Rock, uh, at both. That's R A W K, and R. Uh, that's probably uh, where, where people can learn about it. I yep. would urge people to read every book written by Cory Doctorow. <laughs> and I believe the purpose of humanity is to create as much love and intellect for the universe as possible. That we will soon find these to be measurable and valuable physical forces, and that we should really orient our lives around that. Oh, wonderful. I love it. Thank you so much, Jared. I really (laughs) appreciate you being on the program. Thanks for having me. It was a joy to talk about it. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable.